0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.
1: When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online.
2: PlushCare Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you
0: absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes.
1: Bombus. big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase.
0: As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips.
3: I think we have to change our relationship with failure in general. I think a lot of um, the beliefs around failure is that failure is bad. And uh, I don't want to sound too cliche, but Mm -hmm. failure is it's. I just think people have a have a backwards way of thinking about failure. I mean, failure is just learning, yeah. And it's just, yeah. So I don't know. I, I don't know if the answer's a question or not. Sure, it's, yeah, it's, hard, yeah, it's hard. It's hard because it comes so natural to me that yeah. um, failure is just a big part of my life, and I plan to fail a lot more. Yeah. Um, but yeah.
0: I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500 episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Hey, it's Srini. So I just want to tell you how much I appreciate the fact that you're listening to the show. And if you found the podcast fascinating, instructive, inspiring, or maybe even heartwarming, If there's one person you could think of who'd appreciate our show, a friend or family member, take a moment and share the show with them because good ideas are meant to be shared. Brian, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us.
3: Hey, thanks. It's really good to be here after all this time.
0: Yeah. So, you know, you and I have worked together for about three years. I've mentioned your name multiple times on the show. We've had numerous requests to uh, have you come and talk uh, and and do like a full-blown interview. And we've done a a few episodes where we've dissected interviews and shared some of our own ideas. Uh, But I'm really excited because I get to pick your brain on the air. And uh, (laughs) especially, you know, given that we've known each other for three years and I know that you're a wealth of knowledge about all sorts of things. So I've, I've been hiding out. Yeah, you have been hiding out. So it, it's very cool to to finally do this in this format. So, you know, one of the things that'll be interesting, I think, in this conversation is that I know so much more about you than I, I probably do about our average guest. Um, sure. So, you know, I am going to ask you questions about things that I know you've told me about. So let's start at the, uh, at the very beginning. Um, and this is something that I remember you told me once I should ask you about. And I know from having spent three years with you that you grew up in a small town yeah. uh, called Lowell, Michigan. And I'm curious, what impact having grown up in such a small town has ended up having on your life
3: well growing up in the midwest in general i find that there's different values that people in the midwest have especially how they relate to other people Um, i I don't know i I have this partially i'll I'll talk about it from a business perspective first Mm -hmm. and if we need to talk about any other perspectives we can Um, but one of the things the positives that i learned is that you your reputation is everything and Growing up in a small town, and especially having parents who are small town business owners, you learn that you really need to do the right thing all the time. Mm-hmm. Because if your neighbors don't like you, or you do wrong by a neighbor, your entire business could be up in smoke. Mm-hmm. And there, and plus, just there's a very strong cultural value that, regardless of money's on the table, you're just you need to do the right thing. And you know, having a small community, there's the egotistical reputation, but there's the fact you have to live with these people for maybe the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. So that's impacted me. Um, Most of my business relationships are pretty good and and I really freak out when people are, when I feel like they're getting wronged. Mm -hmm. And some of it has to do with my small town upbringing um, and the the values that come with that. One of the problems that's came up for me is I tend to believe what people say because in the small town community, uh, you can make deals on a handshake and Mm -hmm. people were kind of held accountable by the environment of just being in that bubble. And I've learned even since moving to California that not everybody means what they say. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, well actually a lot in business, people tend to make promises in best case scenarios. Yeah. And I've had to figure that out, That. A lot of times, the promises that people are making or talking about possibilities—they're hypothetical best-case scenarios—and mm-hmm. the, the odds of a best-case scenario happening is like getting all green lights from here to New York.
0: Sure. Yeah. Definitely something else can happen. You know, one of the things that's really interesting is is that you have this sort of small-town, you know, uh, perspective on on you know navigating the world of business, but you've also went and worked in big corporations like Sony PlayStation. So I'm curious mm-hmm. how you took that small-town dynamic uh, and overlaid it into a place like PlayStation, because I mean it's a very different environment than Lowell, Michigan. So, like, what <laughs> sure. you know? How do, how do you take what you've learned from Lowell and translate it? And what? And, and in what ways did you have to adapt?
3: Okay, all right. So I'll start with the funny stuff first. The the first thing I had to learn is that if somebody gives an excuse, for example, for being late, mm-hmm. you don't try and help them with their excuse. you just, you're supposed to go, oh, okay, <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense. So for example, someone would say, oh, sorry, I'm late, the traffic is so bad. Well, well did you try this different? No, do, you don't go there. You just say, oh yeah, the traffic was bad. It's almost like this cultural thing just to let people off the hook. Uh-huh. Because in, in Michigan, if somebody has a problem, you, you try to solve it with them, or if somebody has an excuse, you try to remedy it. So yeah. I had to learn that. If somebody gives excuses, and, and it sounds so judgmental, but especially in big bureaucratic companies, uh-huh. you're not, it's, it's un-PC <laughs> to ask them any further questions about their excuse than, than just let them slide. Uh-huh. So that was number one. The next thing that happened that I noticed at Sony was, I had a very strong work ethic, because that's another thing from the small farming communities. You just have a tremendous work ethic. And one of the things I had to adjust to is that some people in big companies love that, and some people hate it. So what happens is if you have a tremendous work ethic, you really shine a spotlight on the people that are just coasting. Because a lot of people in big companies coast, let's face it. And uh, so I was able to bring that small town work ethic and the small town values of really connecting with people and creating authentic goodwill, you know, I, 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 within a year had relationships with people in three different regions. And I started off as a, as a small time kind of trainer. And before long, I was very close to a senior director of a global operation. And um, yeah, so I think just that small town thinking of just treating everybody with tremendous respect and bringing positivity there, working hard, yeah. created a lot of opportunity, but that later created some problems too. And um, yeah. yeah, so. You know, there's probably
0: a lot of young people listening to this early in their career, probably much like you were uh, in the early PlayStation days, and and I'm curious, you know, what advice you would give to them in terms of navigating a work environment and being able to build relationships with people who, you know, ideally become mentors to them.
3: Wow, that that's a really really good question. Um, hmm. The first thing I would I would say is that if you are hungry and humble, you'd be surprised at the amount of executives that wanna talk to you. And there's so many executives that want people to just execute. They wanna be able to coach people and see results. And a lot of people think there's this big wide gap between who they are now and who they need to be before they can start taking on big projects or talking to big time executives or who's gonna step on whose toes. And, And for me, I always just decided that You know, I wanted to build, for example, I was concerned about job security because as going through, you know, going through the recession earlier in my career, um, I've always been wanting to build security. And I looked at building connections in the company as building a safety net, because in a big company, if you have enough people that love you from all around the world, executives, HR professionals, that's going to, you know, be good for you. So one of the things that I would suggest is just build a a net of, of relationships just everywhere you go. And then, you know, have courage. Mm-hmm. It, for me, I'd, I'm willing to, to go all in. And if I burn a bridge, then I'll leave the company. Yeah. And uh, I just think having that type of courage is really, really important. And a lot of people just play it safe and are scared. And, man, you're on a path to nowhere, especially in a big company. Mm-hmm. In order to make it up fast in a big company, you have to make big moves and take risks. And sometimes you're going to step on people's toes. And you have to figure out... Um, who's the winning team in the company and who's the losing team. There's always <laughs> in a big company, there's always people on both parties yeah. and align yourself with the winning team and, and uh, just go for it. You know, it's funny to, to hear you talk about winning and losing teams. I, I think back
0: to a sales job that I had. And I remember one of my friends said, he's like the guys you go to lunch with, he's like, that's a losing team. He's like, cause all they do is complain. And, uh, you know, and I realized that that group of guys all eventually left the company, but it, it was interesting that that, you know, sort of became like, like, I recognize it now when I hear you say that I didn't at the time.
3: Mm. Yeah, I think a lot of people get in a mode that they just really are holding on too tightly to, you know, I talked about a bubble earlier and a lot of times in companies, man, it's a, it's a total, it's a, it might as well be another small town or like think about high school. And a lot of the people that listen are out of high school. And when you're in a company, it feels like high school all over again. And when you're in high school, you feel like the reality that you're in in those moments are just how it's going to be for life. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the big problems that people run into is they start hating their job or hating their boss or taking on assignments that don't resonate or settling. And it's way better just to not settle and tell, you know, tell people what you want. The, the right people will respect you for it. And, and if you aren't allowed to be yourself, you, you just get out.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
3: yeah. No doubt.
0: Well, speaking of high school, I think you know one of the other things I'm going to do is I'm going to ask you every question you've told me to ask our guests. <laughs> so uh, on that note, what social group were you a part of in high school and uh,
3: how did that influence your life? Sure. I, I was in the, the skater group uh-huh. in high school and that influenced my life in just a tremendous amount of ways. Um, First of all, the skater group is fairly rebellious, and I think that's one of the first entrepreneurial type of um, influences on my life. Is as a skater, you look at the world just very differently. So uh-huh. every, everything out there in outside, if it's concrete, it's a potential you know skate spot, and you're always just looking for opportunity everywhere. Yeah. Um, the next thing is just I, I learned how to um, be just a little bit rebellious and be comfortable with being quote unquote, rejected, even though skateboarding has become a lot more cool, it was still one of those things where you're choosing to be somewhat of an outsider and kind of enjoy it. Um, so, so that was one of the things that, that we had going for us. Just general real- willingness and, and excitement around breaking the rules was, was something that um, influenced me pretty tremendously. Yeah, And then skateboarding in general, I think really led to um, just my later kind of ability to fail Mm -hmm. because if anyone's watched skateboarders for more than five minutes you'll realize that 80 percent of the things you try you fail and you fall (laughs) all the time so that was one of the things that i really got a thrill from failing a lot and then getting something right and winning and having a big you know big high from that
0: yeah you know i'm really glad you brought up uh failure because i think building a tolerance for failure capacity to fail and to get back up again is is something that's you know hugely important i think i've gotten it from uh surfing um Mm -hmm. probably you have as well and i am curious you know for people who are at that bone-breaking age as as i am and who can't get on a skateboard i mean how, how do people build their tolerance for failure like you know, what have you found have been effective methods, you know, that aren't necessarily,
3: you know, things that could do physical harm to your body? Building intolerance for failure. Um, I think just learning new skills, like being willing to to take something on, you know, I think following your curiosity Mm -hmm. um, is one of those things. Um, Something I'll touch on briefly, because you asked about high school, it might be you know, fairly telling, is I started off in middle school, I was, I was kind of hanging out with the cool preppy kids. Mm-hmm. And I noticed that the cool preppy kids were making fun of the, the not cool kids. And, and there was this one kid in particular that um, everyone would make fun of, and I was the only one in the school that I wouldn't. And he would come sit by me, and all my super cool, air quoting right now, preppy friends would leave, and it would be just me and this kid. And I just thought it was so hypocritical that, you know, at that point, the, the prep year kind of jock kids—they were—they were looked upon as like, oh, these kids are so good, and you're part of the cool, popular group. Yeah. And I was like, man, I don't want anything to do with this. So I ended up going with the skateboarders, who turned out they weren't any nicer to this kid, but at least they were <laughs> not being fake. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know, so I just wanted to share that as well. Yeah. Uh, as far as as far as failure, if failure being comfortable with it—I don't know. I mean, I think. I think we have to change our relationship with failure in general i think a lot of um the beliefs around failure is that failure is bad and uh it's, i don't want to sound too cliche but mm-hmm. failure is it's i just think people have a have a backwards way of thinking about failure I mean, failure is just learning yeah and it's just yeah so i don't know i don't know if that answers a question or not sure, it's, yeah, it's, hard, yeah, it's hard it's hard because it comes so natural to me that yeah. um, failure is just a big part of my life and i plan to fail a lot more yeah um but yeah You know,
0: I I want to spend some time talking about learning and education because um, the thing that has always struck me about you is that you know, like you you said so yourself, that you were kind of not categorized as book smart in a Mm -hmm. classroom. But I've spent three years with you. You're. quite book smart as far as I'm concerned and um, you know I'm curious about the choices that you've made in terms of how you chose to learn and how you chose to develop yourself and also knowing that a lot of parents are listening um, who have children who are in you know formal educational institutions what would you tell them based on your experience
3: okay well I hope the school system has changed a little bit um, since I've been out I graduated in 2004 Um, but one of the things that that happened when I was young is, is early as second grade, I had a teacher you know, share with my mom that, hey, there's something possibly wrong with, with Brian, and it's something that's not gonna go away. And ironically enough, I was also in advanced reading at that point, so there was some really interesting disconnect happening with my learning, where apparently I had a learning disability, which I was later diagnosed with ADD, just like mm. half the population, it seems. Yeah. Um, so, what what ended up happening in the, the my, my my biggest fear with going through the whole diagnosis process is I didn't want to be I didn't want to find out that I was stupid for some reason. Um well, obviously that's just devastating in general. Um but I just looking back it was extremely frustrating because I think the studies that I've done as of late especially, I think I had some overexcitabilities intellectually and imaginatively. And what that ended up causing was, I would get bored extremely easily. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the stuff that I saw in class, I mean, I, again, don't want to sound super cliché, but I just didn't see how it applied to life. And I would look at the teacher and I would know how they were doing emotionally. And I'd be like, I wonder what's going on in their life, and I'm not paying attention. And you know, just the, just school in general, the current system that I was in just didn't resonate. So I ended up going through the grades as like a C student and, uh-huh. and just feeling, you know, kind of dumb. and. Uh, pretty disengaged, pretty jaded. I felt bitter about the whole situation. And to the extent that I, I refused to take my ACTs or SATs because uh-huh. I, by the time I was in high school, I really got a grasp of the fact that it wasn't that I was stupid. It was that in my arrogance at that time being a skateboarder is I just thought I was smarter than everybody else and <laughs> <laughs> it made me just want to beat the system. Yeah. And I, the other, my other fear with taking these tests is I, I didn't want a, a test that couldn't understand me to be able to, to label me. So I really became frustrated with education as, as a labeling device, which it so clearly is. I don't know if it still is today, but it was yeah. then. And it just made me rebel against, I didn't want to go to college or, or any of that stuff.
0: It's interesting that you, you know, something that every high school student does, like if I told my parents, uh, I'm not going to take the SATs or ACT, they'd be like, what the hell, (laughs) especially given that my dad is a college professor, like that would never go down. But it's uh, I think the more interesting sort of takeaway for me is that you didn't accept reality as it was. And you actually saw it as something that you could shape to your own liking. Mm. Uh, And I am curious how people develop that and how that how that has developed over the course of your life since then Mm.
3: how somebody can develop the ability to to shape reality to their own liking Mm. well i think i came to the realization that the typical system and way of life as a whole wasn't going to work for me so i had a choice to either let go of any dreams of having something awesome happen in in my life or i had to find another path and i think if people are really real you know you have a quote in the book that you wrote, uh, unmistakable. That I, sh- I just shared that I knew where that path led. If I just kept letting, you know, society label me, if I kept not recognizing my own gifts and kept just following through on on the typical day-to-day grind, I could see all around me. The writing was all over the wall, and where that path was going to lead. And I, I think, you know, for other people, if you're just real about your situation and look at you know what's working, what's not working in your life, and the, is the system working for you or against you? If, and, and I think if you just look at what you're doing now, if you map out the next 20 years, I think you'll find that it might not get you where you wanna go. And then you just have to think, okay, so this system isn't working, so what's an alternate path that, that you can take?
0: Mm-hmm. And, So uh, I want to spend some time talking about the skateboard company, but I want to approach this a little bit differently in terms of how we started. Um, You know, I know that you got to see uh, your parents build a business over the course of your life from, you know, early childhood all the way to actually seeing it, you know, be this really successful thing. So I'm curious what you learned from them that you applied to uh, starting a skateboard company and two, what in the world gave you the audacity as a high school student to think that, you know what, I'm going to start a (laughs) skateboard company.
3: Okay so question one well my i used to tell my parents in middle school that i never wanted to own a business because i saw the amount of intensity and commitment that it took and the amount of crap you had to go through um, so you'll have people quit on you stab you in the back you know sometimes lawsuits or whatever and, and you're working you know, way harder than the average person so it's like why bother and then i saw the excitement of it and the thrill of it and then some of the rewards of it as i came into high school and um, it was just fun, it was exciting. And I think being a skateboarder, I, I liked the adrenaline kind of nature of entrepreneurship, just having something different every day and, and something just that stimulating. Mm-hmm. So that really impacted me. And as far as the audacity to start my own business in high school, um, it came down from, I think it stems just from that whole wanting to beat the system attitude. And I thought, hmm, I could get a really you know, crappy job or I could start my own business and probably make more money, which I did. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but probably it came down to I really wanted to be a professional skateboarder. Like, you know, if you ask any high schooler that is skating or surfing or snowboarding, mm-hmm. they'd be lying to you if they didn't say they didn't <laughs> want to be, you know, be a professional in that sport. Yeah. And when I started realizing that I didn't have the talent to be a professional skateboarder, it was one of those things just like in school where I saw that that could system wouldn't support my vision. Mm-hmm. So I had to create an alternate path and I thought, okay, how can I stay in the skateboarding industry, live that same really cool rockstar lifestyle? Well, I could start a business. And so at 17 years old, um, I tricked the county clerk into giving me a doing business as license thinking I was 18. Mm-hmm. Um, and we got our first business license, me and a, and a partner, actually a DBA, not a business license. And, uh, we just got started and I used the work ethic that I saw from my parents in building that business and within you know by the time I was 19 and a half we had 27 stores you know selling our products
0: hmm. you know I, I want to touch briefly on money stories and I want to come back to this later on but I'm curious uh, you know how having that sort of, of level of financial success when you're in high school where you have more money than you could possibly use I'd imagine uh, at an age where that is not normal like how did that impact your money story and, and, and you know what impact did that end up having later on?
3: Well, I've never had so much money I couldn't use it. (laughs) That's never been a problem. But that's a lot of money for a kid in high school. Yeah, I I I always had 500 bucks in my pocket at minimum. Which is a ton of money for a kid in high school. (laughs) And, uh, you know, how it impacted me. Well, it made me never want to have a job because I just saw jobs as extremely limiting and Uh just not fun. And I guess what I learned at that age is that, man, you could make more money by having a lot of fun and mm-hmm. in, in, in doing something that you really want to do than um, just following the normal you know, rhythm of, of life and what you're quote unquote supposed to do. So as far as money story, I, I think deep down, I, I just knew that, uh, like I, I used to say back in those days that I never wanted to make an hourly rate because I think it had to do with not wanting to be labeled again mm-hmm. and not, not wanting to have anything put a label on me, whether it was a grade in school or a dollar amount per hour, it just seemed very, I just hate, I never really connected that until now, but yeah. that's. I think that was part of it, is it just made me not wanna be labeled again mm-hmm. as, as, in any way.
0: Yeah. Well, I want to talk, uh, about the conversation you had with your mom, uh, about going to college, uh, (laughs) which I I think is a, is a fascinating conversation because I think the way that you approached it is really interesting. And you know, what you chose to do instead is really interesting. And I want to talk about it and kind of, you know, uh, tell tell us about it. Sure.
3: So I didn't want to go to college as, as you know, as I shared, because I just thought college was a big scam. And in most ways I still think it is. And, uh, I, I just recognized that I was in high school, and, I, and again, I saw the system wasn't working for me. So why go belabor the, the system in my life? And I, I told my mom, I said, I'm a successful entrepreneur. I think she she would disagree, at that point. <laughs> you know, running a much larger business and seeing you know the fact that we didn't have a tremendous amount of runway and all this stuff. Yeah. Um, but she said, and my mom had supported, you know, most everything I'd ever wanted to do. So even as a kid, I'd, you know, I'd tell my mom I want to be a fighter pilot, firefighter, this or that. She's always like, awesome, you should do it. I want to start my skateboard company. Awesome, you should do it. So I kind of expected that when I said, hey, I don't want to go to college. College is a scam. And <laughs> my mom said, if you don't go to college, you're cut off. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you're, 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 you have to move out and all this other stuff. And I thought, okay, well. If I'm going to, I was very disappointed because I just thought I didn't want to be labeled. Now I have to go back into a system that's going to label me and by a degree or grade point average or whatever. So I, I decided that I was going to go to flight school, and I had been exposed to flying and aviation because I wasn't a great student and I had the opportunity in high school to be a part of a, a like half in school and like half out of school and like some sort of other program type of type of a thing. It was called uh, KCTC. And I got a chance to work on airplanes. And I remember just looking one morning, I was, I was watching the sunrise. I even got up early for this, which was cool. Hmm. Um, watching the sunrise and I saw a plane landing with the sun sunrise in the background and just something hit me and I just thought, man, I wanna fly airplanes. So when I knew I had to go to college, then I decided to, to fly airplanes. So I went to flight school and I was still building my business, which it didn't go as well um, while I was in flight school for obvious reasons. I mean, you just can't focus on in high school, I was just totally not engaged in building a business, but in college, in flight school especially, it's it's a little bit more difficult, and mm-hmm. being at a distance from my partner, I ended up selling my half of the business uh, while I was in college. So that that's how that conversation went, and, and my mom won, mm-hmm. and uh, I went, I got my pilot's license.
0: So, I mean, you ultimately decided not to become a pilot. I'm curious what lessons from the world of aviation um, you have applied to how you run businesses, how you do all the things you do now. Because I know that there have to be tons of lessons.
3: Yeah, well, um, I decided I didn't want to be a commercial pilot because I always wanted to be an entrepreneur. So I didn't actually even finish college. As I got my pilot's license, I ended up uh, leaving college at that point, but I didn't go all the way through. You know, I'm sure a lot of people that are listening are familiar with aviation. I didn't go through, I only got my VFR license. I didn't go all the way through to commercial. Mm -hmm. Um, As far as what I apply today, uh, man, it takes a lot of courage to fly an airplane. And you have to juggle a lot of things at once and you really have to keep your cool. So one of the things I learned, and I've always been generally good at keeping my cool, but you learn very quickly that in an airplane, especially when you're learning Mm -hmm. and flying by yourself for the first time, you, you just have to keep it together. You have to learn how to take a deep breath, and there's a lot of moving parts. And as long as you stay relaxed, it's gonna work out. And you, and you learn that it, when you when you fly, um, you just have to. There's no other choice. Mm-hmm. And even if things are going wrong, like I, I had a point in my flight training where I did panic a bit, and that was extremely horrifying. And I was on my first cross country solo, which means on my first solo flight that's going at a distance. And um, and I just learned from that experience. I ended up breathing through it and, and just relaxing, and everything worked out i just didn't I just didn't aim for the ground. I just kept going straight and figured it out. Yeah. and uh, I just learned later that if you just relax into the challenges and just just take a few steps back that that you can you can just over overcome it.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, the other thing I learned is that people told me I shouldn't go to flight school because I wasn't good at math, mm-hmm. and there I was and succeeded and got my license. So I just learned again that letting other people label me was just uh, just a joke.
0: Yeah, I mean, ironically, I'm the
3: Indian guy who sucks at math, and you're the one who runs the finances of the business. <laughs> I don't like math. that just doesn't have a meaning to me at that point. Now yeah. I think math is super interesting because I, I see all these different ways to use it. Uh, so um, something that I, I personally have not really
0: gotten to ask you about in as much depth as I've, I've wanted to, and I, I wanted to save this question for this conversation. <laughs> uh is, you know, something that you told me and something that I knew would be a huge part of this conversation, and that is this notion of talking to 10,000 strangers. The fact that you have walked up to 10,000 strangers and started conversations with them. Uh, There's not very many people who I think have had that experience, Um, and so I want to talk about, one, why in the hell did you do that? (laughs) Because people are like, okay, that sounds sociopathic if they didn't understand the context. Sure. what did it teach you about human behavior and and social dynamics and relationships? And um, how do you apply the lessons from that today? Which are like four questions in one, but you should be used to that by now.
3: (laughs) Okay. So I'll start with why it was only partially crazy. And that's when I was in flight school, I sold my skateboarding business and I joined a network marketing company, which that's just all sorts of things we could talk about with that. And I was with a company called Amway, Um, great products. The the team I was with at the time uh, wasn't a great fit for me. But the thing that caught me, just like all network marketing companies, is I I wanted the freedom. Mm -hmm. And when I lost the vision to become a professional skateboarder, I still wanted to build my company and have the freedom that a professional skateboarder would have, but then I sold that business, so I was looking for freedom again. And in network marketing, I found a group of people, like normal, well-adjusted adults that had the audacity to dream and talk about freedom and really want financial independence. So I found a, a place of belonging and um, decided to, to join Amway and, and really go all in on that. So part of joining Amway is you're not really allowed to advertise using any traditional means. So you have to go talk to people, you mm-hmm. know, friends and family and that type of thing. Well, it, you know, anyone that's ever tried this stuff before, well, f- they know that you run out of friends and family pretty, qu- pretty quickly <laughs> to talk to. <laughs> and, and you have a few battle scars by the end of that. So um, I was very committed to this, I- this idea of freedom. And Amway is very, g- any, any network marketing company that's successful is great at keeping a vision in front of you of, of freedom. They constantly are just pumping you with, with success story after success story after success story. So I just wanted to be that. And one of the things that they would celebrate in the success story is the struggle victory. And they'd like to paint themselves as the underdog that eventually became successful, which really encourages people in network marketing to bang their head against the wall Mm -hmm. because you wanna be that struggle victory story. Well, I've learned later that the more you crush struggle out of your life, the more you can become successful. But at the time I thought struggle was great, which is very different than my skateboarding business. Um, So as far as talking to 10,000 strangers, after I ran out of friends and family to talk to, I started having to talk to you random people so i would go out and every day after work i was working in tech support at that point so i i left flight school and and joined a company called eds which was later bought by hewlett-packard uh, doing really crappy tech support work um and then in the evenings i'd spend my time you know building amway uh-huh. and i would just go out every day and my goal for, for good portions of it was I wanted to get at least two people's names and numbers a day. Yeah. It later got to five people's names and numbers a day. And I knew for every four people I talked to, I'd get one name and number, typically. Uh-huh. So I'd go, after, I'd go talk to, you know, eight to 10 people every day, just uh-huh. strike up a cold conversation, gas station or a mall, and then I would get two of their names and numbers and then try to you know show them the presentation for Amway. And uh yeah, so I spent a lot a lot of a lot of time talking to strangers and I don't know I I, I learned a lot from it. Um some of the biggest lessons are Gosh, I, I got to see people from how they fir- first impression mm-hmm. to how they behaved. Whether people were good for their word or not good for their word. I mean, obviously, I take some responsibility for that being, you know, the the communicator. Sure. Um, but I, I could I could very quickly pick up even just by looking at somebody move uh-huh. just walk just walking. I could see how open minded they were. I could see if they were happy, if they were unhappy, if they were often I could predict what people did for a living. Uh-huh. So there, there was, you know, I remember just even just one exchange stick stands out to me where I, I walked up to a guy and I forgot my opening line. I said, hey, are you from around here or something? And the way he answered, I said, oh, um, you're a Cooley law student, right? And he said, yeah. I said, he, how'd you know that? I was like, I just knew, I could tell. <laughs> and, and I just got to the point that I could I could read people within seconds of seeing them. Uh-huh. And I just got really good at that. Um, and the the being able to read people now pays off in a lot of ways. It can also be fairly distracting because you just tend to, you know, I guess, see the world through almost. Um, it's almost an over, uh, you have more data than you want. Right. Um, but but yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, mostly I learned about myself because it takes quite a bit to just go up to random strangers all the time. Yeah. And get people's names and numbers. <laughs> Yeah, yeah,
0: I mean, it was, it, this was so interesting to me because I remember the handful of times, you know, I've been at a bar with you being single. You're like, I could probably tell you which girl in this bar will actually give you her phone number. <laughs> I'm like, that's useful. I'm like, I don't give a shit about Amway. I want to know about that. Um, what I'm curious about, tell me about some of the more uncomfortable conversations that you had to have, the ones where people didn't want to be talking to you. Um, and, and how do you navigate situations like that? What did you learn from those?
3: Well, there were times where I wanted to hit people. <laughs> because, you know, at the time, I really felt like my intentions were pure, uh-huh. and which, which gave me the, the ability to do that. If I felt like it was unethical, um, then I, I probably wouldn't have been able to go out with the, the intensity and consistency that I did. So part of it was um, I, I learned to like the, the rejection to a degree. Uh-huh. Um, I learned to like the adversity. Um, but another thing is it started teaching me about, about numbers, where I knew that if I could get enough people to tell me no, so one of the ways I got through it mentally, and this might work for salespeople or any business owner out there, who knows, is I, I would look at the numbers and I'd say, okay, I just need five people five people to tell me no today. Yeah. And sometimes by the time you got five people to tell you no, seven people would have told you yes. So you're just trying to get somebody to tell you no at that point, and it ends up being fun. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing I learned is that you have to play offense. Um, if I went out there I used to think about this shield versus the sword and the shield is where you're like ducking for cover and you have to be aggressive and play offense if you're if you're going to you know maintain anything like that and and really build a strong sense of your own identity so yeah. when you get you know five people I guess there's a lot of people out there who probably have not had five people tell me no you know in a week or maybe their life but yeah five a day uh-huh. so I just had to develop my own um just my own sense of i see something that they don't and i'd be and maintain my own vision which mm-hmm. I kind of always have had that but um you just you just you know you learn to navigate loneliness too mm-hmm. because if you're out there by yourself and you know, there's a lot of, a lot of people do treat you very disrespectfully and yeah um you know rightfully so you know in some in, in some regard if i'm just like stopping them at a mall i mean that's pretty annoying mm-hmm. um but I just I just had to learn how to, you know, develop that mental toughness and probably some of the mental toughness from skateboarding, you know, came in, came into play there. Yeah. Um, to answer your question.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think the the thing that's interesting to me is, is, you know, you brought up like this numbers idea. Uh, and I, I was thinking about that in the context of my own writing process. Right. A thousand words a day. You know, I'm mm-hmm. like, OK, if I write a thousand words a day, at least two sentences is bound to be semi, you know, coherent and usable. Uh you know, and, and it, it's a, it seems to me like a very similar process that could be applied to just about any other area of your life. If you think about it in terms of, OK, I'm just aiming for a number, which is a very much process orientation instead of outcome orientation.
3: Hmm. Yeah, I mean, what you'll end up learning if you want to build any skill or craft or business is that you have to you have to really get into the numbers and less about the, the daily emotion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. Um. So one okay so
0: this is another thing were there moments uh, in you know talking to all these people where you really just you wanted to quit and you wanted to give up and and what did you do in those moments how did you navigate those moments um, and manage your own emotions through them
3: wow Um, there were so many days I wanted to give up and quit Um, part of it had to do with uh, stubbornness because I just wanted to prove to everybody that thought it was stupid that (laughs) that it wasn't Mm -hmm. Uh, but I mean, there was a lot of lonely nights, a lot of lonely nights because I was part of competitions even at that time that I, I would go head to head with people and say, hey, wh- whoever doesn't get their two contacts loses for, for months at a time, um, actually 30 days at a time, but I'd often go back to back. So some, some nights it was hard enough and cold Michigan nights that I wouldn't get my second contact and I'm gonna reveal how crazy I am here until like two or four in the morning so wow. I'd have to find like places that were open people are much less receptive at 2am on a cold winter <laughs> night than 6pm <laughs> uh, Yeah. Um, so as far as managing the wanting to quit um, gosh I think again it had to do with with knowing where the path of quitting led me uh-huh. and um, I just thought if I quit I don't know what else to do and I'm s- certainly not going to sit here in this, this cubicle job all, you know the rest of my life and yeah uh, one of the, one of the downsides to network marketing and especially that organization is they tend to, I think the military does this too, from what I've heard, is they program you to think that it's either that or you're, you're, you're nobody. And they'd kind of, even though I'd already built a successful company, they'd, they'd reprogram my brain to a degree and, and I, 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 let me say this as I allowed them to, so mm-hmm. it's not their fault, it's mine. Um, that I just thought, if it's not not this, you know, there's nothing else. I wasn't experienced enough to know that there's a million ways to have financial freedom and enjoy your life or even just make good money. The whole... I learned later that financial freedom is kind of a joke. Mm -hmm. Um, It's like, it's not that it's not possible. That shouldn't be the goal. Um, So, part of it was, if it's not this, then what? Um, So, that was part of it. And actually, what... It wasn't until later, and I had this never-quit mentality, but it wasn't until later I read a book by Seth Godin that mm-hmm. allowed me to be comfortable with quitting, and that was called The Dip. Mm-hmm. And everyone in, in in Amway at the time would suggest that quitters were losers and all this stuff, and, and Seth Godin started sharing in this book that oftentimes the most successful business owners in the world quit often. They quit fast, and they move on to stuff that works. And that was one of the first things that, that led me to go, wow, this business isn't working. Mm-hmm. Um you know, there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, but I'd enrolled a lot of people, and then the team that I was a part of just wasn't resonating with the, the people that I was enrolling. Yeah. And um, yeah, so later it became, I, I finally figured out quitting was a sign of, of intelligence, not a sign of um, being weak, uh-huh. and, and I, I left.
0: Wow. So- uh, one other question that I can't, uh, you know, leave this conversation without asking you is what is the role that uh, your relationship with your wife played in your ability to do all of this?
3: Oh, um, pretty, you know, I, I was doing it before I met her. Yeah. And she has since like encouraged me, you know, quite a bit and been there for me a lot in those dark moments where I didn't want to quit. And she always believed in my vision and believed in me. So that that's been really huge. Um I think part of it too is her her belief in me allowed me to think bigger than you know I have to be successful in this one context and I think that was another thing that allowed me just just to move on when I when I really needed to. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing was too is like you know I was putting her through a lot so yeah. I would work all day and then I would go out in the evening and, and come home at like nine at night or sometimes two thirty at night and that's not a heck of a marriage for her. And all the time, I was promising, her, promising her all this financial freedom. And mm-hmm. after, you know, long enough years of doing that, um, you start to feel like this is not what either of us were were agreeing upon. And I, I had to just figure she, she wasn't happy, I wasn't happy. And uh, you know, part of the decision to leave was like, hey, we got to find something better for us. Yeah. And uh, we ended up, you know, moving to California and changing our life completely. Um, but yeah, we're going to talk about that as well.
0: Um, you know, one other part that I want to talk about uh as we wrap up this sort of first segment of our, our conversation is I know religion played a big role uh in your life for quite some time and, and I'm curious kind of how that evolved over time and also um you know, one of the things that you and I were talking about is, you know, part of leaving uh the situation that you were in is, is basically loss aversion, right? The, yeah. That occurs. So let's talk about both yeah. of those things.
3: Yeah. Actually that, that reminds me of other reasons why I wasn't quitting. Um, actually, something that we talked about before was loss aversion and sunk cost. Mm-hmm. And when you go out there in cold winter nights and, and commit as hard as I did, you know it's hard just to walk away from it because you really want to reap the returns. Um, one of the other things was, is, is I made it through a point in my life where I was like Rebellious skateboarder and I was ready to have some order. And Amway brought that, I started experiencing mentors in my life for the first time and these cool events of all, all sorts of, almost like Tony Robbins type events. And the organization I was a part of was very religious. And I wasn't into it at first, but I've always had kind of like a, a bent for spirituality. Um, I, I had a lot of existential questions as a child. So I finally got around some people that I respected and uh, I joined the the religion that they were really, really strong about was Christianity. And one of the things that ended up happening with that that business and that team was that they started twisting business and religion together. So it became not just about, hey, you need to enroll these people to build out a team and make money and have financial freedom, but then it started changing and morphing into Hey, you need to enroll these people so that they could be saved from hell, or you know, come to Jesus, or you know, and, and it sounds really weird now, but um, but that was a big factor. So, so somehow I started. It was almost almost cultish, really, to be completely transparent. It was really hard to come out of that. Um, but that was another reason not to quit. Is my religion started being tied up with it too? And then now I'm getting more real and. and and then the other thing that happens is when you join Amway and you're as committed as I am, they become your, your family, they become your sole reference point. They even train you on how not to seek any you know, validation or really listen to your friends or family. Mm-hmm. And I learned later, I was studying cults because essentially, in my opinion, I, I did get sucked into a cult-type um, yeah. bubble. And I was looking at the pattern and I felt stupid. You know, one of my biggest fears, as you heard earlier, is I just didn't want to ever find out that I was stupid. And I felt stupid. And I was like, how did somebody as smart as me and having as great of you know parents and all this stuff, how did I end up in this whole like crazy worldview? Um, I can justify it in a lot of different ways, but one of the things that that I learned later was that the, the same patterns that the network marketing companies use um, sometimes some religions or even some corporations or startups is uh, they're they're very cultish. So if, if any organization starts telling you to only seek them for validation, to stop listening to other people, right? Um, that's a pretty major red flag, and I, I'm going to have a big problem with anyone that that I hear saying something like that. Sure. Um, so that was a big part of it too, of, of not wanting to not wanting to quit. Is my you know when you're when you really get in touch with with spirituality especially a, a, a religion like Christianity where it's such high stakes, uh-huh. where e- either people are going to be in heaven or they're gonna be in hell. I mean, does it get more high stakes than that? If we're all of eternity? <laughs> yeah, so that's you get this hero complex too yeah. you're trying to save the world and all this stuff. So all that made it extremely hard to, to, to leave. Hmm. And I had to have a lot of really difficult conversations with myself and, and in order to just unravel all of that, and just become real with what actually happened. And it ended up being I wanted to get in for financial independence, but the more you get sucked in, the more you start um, changing the reason you got in. And now, now you're doing it for reasons that you never even signed up for. And no one ever admitted that they were really wanting to get you to be a part of. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I, I have a lot, of, um, a lot of mixed feelings about you know, that, that point in my life, that season. It was seven years. No, It was a long, long window. Um, and I mean, I, what was interesting is I still ha- I was still holding down successful jobs. Otherwise, like I was moving up in kind of the, the IT world. And um, you know, so, yeah.
0: yeah. You know, one of the things that um, I know you and I have, have talked about is that these sort of intense periods of our lives, periods of grief or periods of turmoil, they tend to leave imprints and imprints that, you know, you have triggers from years later, mm-hmm. uh, you know, to the point where these things are still on your mind and uh, i'm curious you know like how and this is probably a big question but how did you how did you finally let go of all that stuff i mean because that's a lot to deal with
3: (laughs) yeah well i ended up i had somebody that helped me so strangely enough um my wife and i got to a point where we were so frustrated with the the leadership because we started seeing how this religious stuff was was impacting the people that we were bringing in so we would bring somebody into the organization and next thing you know they're talking about how if you vote democrat you're going to hell like just crazy stuff and we're Mm -hmm. like okay this is really messed up and now we're we're never going to be successful with these because i never bought into any of that type of bs yeah um So we started being really real with ourselves and going, man, we we were looking all the way up through your organization of the team that we're a part of and we saw no one that was capable of helping us. So we really get to our dreams, our goals. And um, so we had to start looking around. And there was a guy um, that I had respected for a long time in that business. His name is Dean Kosegi. And uh, the night before we met him and we were praying, Again, very religious at the time, and we were praying that, you know, if we are supposed to be in the business still, Would that God would give us a sign and let us know. So the next day, I ended up seeing that this guy was coming into town, and he said, hey, if anyone wants to grab coffee, and, and to put it in perspective, this guy would speak in front of 30,000 people all over the world, very famous, very hard to reach. And uh, I sent him a message on Facebook and said, hey, my wife and I would love to meet you. And he said, well, you can be my guest tonight. And, and that was just insane, because I wanted to meet this guy just enough to shake his hand one day. Mm-hmm. And he came into our life and we talked about everything that we we're going through and all the weird stuff. And he he had been around this business enough to know that there were there was organizations like ours that were just being very, um, and, and by the way, Amway is completely against all this stuff. I should say that Amway as a company is against that, they have rules against the type of teachings and things that were happening, but that team was breaking them. Mm-hmm. Um, though Amway was turning a blind eye, they were aware of it. Yeah. Um, so he ended up explaining to us how weird all that stuff was and how he had to break out of it himself. And he was extremely successful, multi-millionaire in the business. And he just looked at us and he was like, gosh, you guys are, we, we stayed up with him until like three in the morning in this hotel suite in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Mm-hmm. He said, if you guys are serious about the dreams that you want, I mean, it's clear. He's like, I'm looking at your wife, Brian, and you guys, you need to make a change. And he said, if you're serious, you need to move out to California and just get away from all this. You need to change your environment. You need to start meeting more people. You need to start meeting successful people that are not a part of this thing. And you need to start like detoxing from all this. And so he was, you know, we had, we prayed very hard. And then the next day that happened. And then, um, we ended up, um, leaving the organization, which was very painful because as I mentioned that I was with it for seven years and and they become almost like family. And uh, I ended up when I told one of our, my mentors at the time that we were going to explore working with this guy Dean. Um, he, he texted me and said, "Nice knowing you," and, wow. and that was it. And uh, you know, my, and then he went on to tell my other good friends in the business that we had been deceived by Satan and all this other stuff. So just super weird, um, embarrassed even talking about it now. But um, but yeah, so it was fairly traumatic um, to. have happen and and it just it took it took time it took years thankfully i had somebody with me that had gone through something like that you know dean helped me through it um and just had to learn how to how to let it all go and you know when when he texted me that i went into shock and i was like shaking and stuff like it was so weird just the 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 emotional bullet that that was yeah um but yeah i ended up you know i just it just takes time man And, and i think changing environments is huge like if i was still living in the same house Spending time with the same people, um, doing the same activities, you know, being in all the same environments, I probably would still be fairly scarred and maybe like far less of a, you know, of a person now. But I just changing all of my environments was Uh was huge. So I was able to rebuild an identity very quickly by by moving across the country.
0: All right. Well, we will uh, pick up how to rebuild an identity uh, in the next half of our conversation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared.
2: Hi. Hi.